This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Uh, there's not really much you can say about Dolly Parton that hasn't been said, is there? She, uh, of course, is a superb songwriter, terrific singer, amazing performer. She's a style icon, a feminist icon, a philanthropist. And, uh, well, she's also just a really lovely, charming, delightful human. And she's chatting to Kim here to promote an absolute smorgasbord of new releases. There's a Netflix series, there's a documentary, a podcast, a book, she's a busy woman. But this is, it's really about her presence. Uh, It's about her storytelling and her star power. And, you know, some people have just got it, and Dolly's got it. Enjoy. Dolly Parton. The most honoured female country singer-songwriter ever. Ten Grammy Awards, movies, those great songs. That was the theme, of course, from the movie she starred in with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Nine to five. And whether it's COVID or Dolly Parton's extraordinary energy and work ethic or her sheer goodwill. She's a philanthropist who, among other things, donated a million dollars towards the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. All of those things might explain the sudden rush of interest in Dolly. One of her latest projects is a big book called Dolly Parton, Song Teller, with the stories behind some of her lyrics. There's a Netflix series called Dolly Parton's Heartstrings. There's a book by Sarah Smash called She Come By It Natural. There's a very popular podcast called Dolly Parton's America, There's a stage version of 9 to 5. There's a music documentary called Here I Am. And here she is. Where? Well, I am in Nashville at my offices, sitting here around my little Christmas trees. You can't see all that probably, but I'm just sitting here getting ready for Christmas and, and certainly ready to talk about it with you. How many Christmas trees do you have, Dolly? Well, I have a few houses scattered around. I have a lake house, and so I I decorate that one kind of in a, you know, in a water theme, like with the little fishing lures and that sort of thing, fun stuff like that. But in my big house, I have just beautiful trees with butterflies and all sorts of things on it that I love. I've just been looking at your book, Dolly Parton Song Teller. Fascinating. I want to talk about a few of the songs that you highlight in it. You've written thousands and thousands of songs, but only something like 450 have been recorded. Do you think the others will get recorded? Oh, I'm sure they will eventually, even long after I'm dead and gone. But I've got enough songs for everybody for all time. I always say I've written at least 3,000 songs, but three good ones. <laughs> but actually, in the song teller, we used about 175 of, of my songs, songs that I thought would be of interest to talk about and to explain, certainly the big hits, and then some of the ones that I just enjoyed writing more than others. I know you were joking, but what would you say the three good ones are? Well, I would. I have certainly. I have Jolene. I have. Uh, uh, I will always love you, and I have nine five, and there's a few others that are pretty good. Coat of many colors, but I mean, I think about the ones that are the biggest, and I make jokes about that. But they're all personal to me. They're all hits with me. They're like my children. I always say, and I expect them to support me when I'm old, and they are, and I'm old. <laughs> 
And some of them still, the royalties are coming in pretty good, especially like on a song like I Will Always Love You. So I will always love Whitney Houston for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you that you made that song a success before she came along and made it a, a mega hit. But I guess that just doubled the money for you, did it? Well, it wasn't about money. She, I certainly made more money off of her than I did on mine. I had a number one hit on it two times. It's you did. the first time in, in history that the same person has had a number one on the same song. It was a number one country song uh, for me in the early 70s. And then I recorded it again when I did the movie with Burt Reynolds, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And, of course, we used it again, and it became number one again. And then, uh, of course, Whitney took it and made it worldwide. And so uh, it's the little gift that keeps on giving, that's all. I feel so sad when I think about Whitney Houston, don't you? Oh, she was the greatest singer ever. And she was such a sweet and beautiful girl. Yeah, it's sad when when those things happen the way they do. But she sure left a lot of wonderful music in the world and a lot of precious memories to a lot of people. She highlighted the, the dreadful things that fame and fortune and the music industry can do to you. Have you ever teetered on the verge of that? No, I have to say I'm fortunate that I never got addicted to anything because I was too busy working. Plus, I never did want to do anything that would mess with my mind, so to speak, no matter whether how good or bad it is. I love to write and I love to think, and I don't like to do anything that's going to, you know, take a chance on messing me up somehow. And I'm just so busy, I just never... I, I just never had a, you know, oh, I mean, when I go to a party or if I go out to a nice dinner, you know, I'll have a drink and all that now and then. But I never was one to get addicted to anything. Food's always been my my big vice, my, you know, my my big weakness. But I have to watch that pretty close, too. You know, you've talked about your marriage. You remarried Carl Dean a couple of three years ago. You've been married then for 53 years. I mean, that is... 54, congratulations. That is extraordinary. How on earth have you done that? Well, I tell you, it's not easy to be married, period. And it's certainly not easy to be married in this business. But usually when people in entertainment business get divorces, they're in the same business. And I think there's a lot of conflict there. But with my husband and I, we we both have a great deal of respect for each other. We're really good friends. He's very independent. He's got his own mind, his own things to do. And we just really enjoy each other's company. And we're not in the, in the same business, so we don't have that to argue about and fight about. So we just really, uh, you know, we have a lot of things in common, but we have enough not in common to actually enjoy conversations with each other. Like I really am interested in what he's thinking, what he's doing, what he's been doing, what he's planning to do. And he's genuinely interested in show business, but not being in it, but he loves hearing about it. So we love sharing. So we've, we've just had a really good marriage. We've been together 56 years and we've been married for 54. And when we was married 50 years, we thought, you know, we didn't get a chance to do that big old wedding like we wanted to, to get dressed up all fancy and all. So we just uh, renewed our vows and got dressed up so pretty, took a bunch of pictures and uh, we just loved it. So it was, he, he tells people now I'm his second wife. I said, don't say that. I'm your only one. So, but anyway, we, we're just good buddies. One of the reasons why you didn't have the fancy marriage was because you had to keep the marriage a secret to begin with, did you not? 
Well, I only kept it a secret for a year. Uh, when we first married, or when we first got engaged, we were planning a, a big wedding, and his mother, uh, her daughter had eloped, so she didn't get to do that. Her only daughter, Carl's sister, Sandra, she didn't get to do that big wedding because Sandra didn't want the big wedding, so she ran off and got married. And so she thought, well, we'll get to do it with Dolly and Carl. So she was planning on doing that, and then that's when the publishing company record label I was with at the time, Monument Records, they said, oh, I don't want you to get married now because we're investing all this money in you, Fred Foster, who I love dearly. He said, just wait for a year. We'd planned our wedding. You know, we were planning it within the next few weeks. And so he begged me not to do it. So I said, okay. So we went that same weekend down to Ringo, Georgia, just across the Tennessee state line and got married and it was a year later and we were happily married and then my career was doing really well I was happy and Fred Foster said now see ain't you glad you didn't get married because this probably wouldn't have happened I said I got married the same weekend you told me not to <laughs> so anyway I love that story that goes to show you love is the best thing ever you said that um your husband does his own thing what is his own thing well, my husband was in the asphalt paving business for all of his young life until he retired from that. He and his father used to uh, pave driveways and parking lots and all that. So that was his business. And he, he loved working in real estate. So he, he used to get out because he loves traipsing around in his truck and finding all this property and started investing in that. And then he eventually, after he did retire, he uh, he started just keeping up our farms mowed, keeping the backfields mowed, and working on his tractors, on his trucks. He's a mechanic, so he's just a, a real uh, country boy, outdoor man, and uh, he just can do about anything he wants to. You mentioned the song "I Will Always Love You," and everybody knows that you. The story of that song's origin is that you were quitting the Porter Wagoner show. Porter had become controlling and you had outgrown him and you wrote I will always love you and sang it to him it was like a a love letter and a letter of goodbye how did he receive yes. it well it was at that time I've often told the story I was I'm very grateful to Porter I mean, he gave me my first really big break because at that time he had the number one syndicated show in in the business they were just beginning to have those shows like like that the Wilburn Brothers show where Loretta Lynn started and Porter's show and he asked me to be the girl singer as the girl singer that had been with him for years had planned to marry and move away so I got that job but I had always intended to have my own show I had already had a couple of hit records and Porter had seen me on local tv and and so he called me in and I said I would stay for five years. And of course, we got so successful with our duets and we're very similar in the fact that we're both very ambitious and very, uh, I don't know, opinionated, I guess is a better way of saying it. But anyway, we, we had our conflicts. But when I got ready to go, I stayed seven years and all. But I said, I have to go. I can't just be, I can't be the girl singer in somebody else's show. I want my own show. I want to travel. I want to see what all I can do. So he was having a hard time with that. We fought a lot over that, had a, heart, a lot of heartache over that. So he wouldn't listen to anything I was trying to tell him. So I went home and wrote the song, I Will Always Love You. And I went back the next morning after we'd had one of our rounds. And I said, Porter, just sit down. I want to sing you something. 
it says how I feel and what I think. And so I started singing it and Porter, he got big tears in his eyes. And when I finished, he said, that's the best song you ever wrote. And if you want to go that bad, you can go if I can produce that record. I said, it's a deal. So that's kind of how that happened. But I, it really had a lot of emotion and a lot of heart in it. And I was, uh, you know, very torn because I didn't want to tear up the show or anything, but I had to go. And when you got to go, you got to go. You've always heard that, right? That first time that you appeared on his show, you were replacing a much-loved singer. Was that the first and only time in your career that you got booed? <laughs> That's funny you should say that, but yes, it was. But it wasn't, I didn't get booed, but it's the same as, because Porter's girl singer, her name was Norma Jean, and she was a huge country artist, a wonderful gal. In fact, we're still friends. I saw her not very long ago. And uh, I got to know her after she had left the show, But because she's friends with another one of my friends. So anyhow, we got to know each other, but, at the time, she was really important on his show, and he had built his show, the two of them. And when she left, well, here comes this girl singer, me with the big hair and boobs and, and with this unusual voice. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. And so uh, the first time I went out on the road with him, there were people in the when – when I came out, they were saying, where's Norma Jean? Where's Norma Jean? And it was like, I just felt all like the blood like draining out of me. And like, it was just one of those helpless kind of feelings. I said, well, I'm not Norma Jean. I love her too. I loved her too. But she, she left the show and I got hired. So please don't be mean to me. Hopefully I can, you know, but that, you know, but so yeah, they were saying, where's Norma Jean? And I can understand that. I bet you somebody might holler if, you know, say, where's Dolly? Where's Dolly? If somebody was trying to fill my shoes. Eventually, Porter Wagoner sued you for a million dollars. So things were really unpleasant. But, and I know this story because I've listened to the podcast Dolly Parton's America. In the end, you did him a huge favour out of the kindness of your heart. What was that? Well, there's a lot to be said about mine and Porter's relationship. I mm. loved Porter. I loved his children. Uh, we were very close. I'm still very close to all of Porter's children, and I was with Porter, you know, just a few hours before he passed away. We had our time to, you know, to spend together. But in those days, after I finally did leave, well, he still was not happy about that, and we were fighting over songs and publishing and all that. So he sued me for a million dollars, and I didn't have a penny because uh, I was trying to put a band together and all that. So that was fine. So I eventually paid him off. And so years later, he hit on hard times. And so uh, I had bought his publishing company back so he could have some money. I bought his publishing company. And then a little later on, he was having more trouble. And I gave it all back to him. So that's how God works, though, because I'd always felt bad that maybe I hadn't paid my dues. You don't know what you owe. You don't really know how to pay people back for what they do. But God has a way of working those things out. And I'm a very faith-driven person. I just depend on spirit for everything. So I think that even though it was bad for him to have hard times, but I'm glad that his children now have all the all his songs back. And I'm grateful for all of that, and I'm sure he was too. I'm sure you know who I'm talking to, but I'll tell you nevertheless, it's Dolly Parton. Time changes our view of things, you know, and some people have 
taken up the cudgel on your behalf against Porter and suggested that Sarah Smirsch, for example, has likened his treatment of you to domestic abuse. Do you relate to that at no. all? No, I do not. No, no, no. I was as stubborn as he was. Porter did not abuse me. I mean, we had some abusive arguments, no doubt about that. But Porter was not physically abusive. No, no, she's not suggesting uh, that. Verbally, yeah, I know. There were, yeah, of course, you know, anytime you fight with people, you're going to say things, whatever. But he never got the best of me. And so nobody ever has. And I, I don't think anybody ever will. No, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because... I mean, you said it yourself. I know I look totally bizarre and artificial, but I'm totally real inside. And people get that. You have become a feminist icon almost despite yourself. Do you, do you <laughs> comprehend how that happened? <laughs> I love how you said that I've become that in spite of myself. Yeah, I think that's true because, I mean, my, my, uh, my look is totally... Uh, you know, artificial, but, you know, I truly feel like I am totally real. And I hope that people do get that. And I think through the years, I think in the early days, people didn't know what to make of me. But I was always sincere in how I look because it's like a country girl's idea of glam. I even wrote a song called Backwoods Barbie, but I always wanted to be pretty. I was a natural beauties. So I just kind of have to make it up as I go, but I'm comfortable in the way I look. And that's kind of fits me and my personality. But I think through the years, people saw that I was, you know, I had some talent and that I was sincere about my work. And I had fun. I enjoy myself. I, I mean, I like painting up. It's like a kid playing in paints and crayons. I just paint it on myself. I can't help thinking that it must be very hard work. It's not hard work. It's fun. I mean, I can get ready so fast. I'm, I really, I'm so quick at it. And I'm, I'm so used to doing this because with my makeup, I wear the same makeup in the daytime as I do at night. Sometimes I might make my eyeshadow a little darker. But as far as just the way I look, I just, I just like what looks good in the closet. I, it depends on my mood. I think, nah, I'm not wearing that today. Oh, I know there's one. I'll wear that one. So whatever it is, I just kind of go with whether it's a, a wig, singing, you know, like I never have a bad hair day because I've got choices. I have a great hairstylist that gives me choices, which I love. Cheryl Riddle, she just gives me, if I want a short wig, if I want a wild one, if I want this or that. Same with my clothes. I just, I just get dressed to suit myself. And if I suit me, then I seem to suit a lot of other people. And what more can you ask? Tell if I'm me. comfortable with me, people are comfortable with me. Do you ever go out in disguise? Well, I've tried that a time or two back in, in the early days. I remember one year my two of my sisters and I were going out Christmas shopping and they said, well, we'll never get nothing done, you know, if, if you go, if you make all up. And so I had a, a sister that was blackheaded. So she had some, a uh, couple of black wigs and pieces that she had. So she said, won't you wear one of my wigs and uh, just paint your, you know, they talked me into doing my eyebrows darker and, you know, just kind of doing things a little different. And I wore like a little smock outfit and uh, so you couldn't see my shape and all that. And we thought we were in good shape. So first place we go is to a bookstore uh, uh, and a record store. And so we were looking and I hollered out. I said, hey, Cassie, have you, have you seen 
And these girls ran over and said, oh, my God, it's Dolly Parton in a black wig. And I, then I, they wanted my autograph, and I felt embarrassed because I didn't look like me. And I liked looking like me if somebody's going to know who I am. So I told the girls, I said, let's go back to the house. I'm going to get dressed back as myself, and then we'll go shopping again. And that's what we did. And after that, I never tried that again. So funny. I mean, the question is bluntly put in that podcast I mentioned, Dolly Parton's America. How did the punchline of boob jokes become a feminist icon? Was there a day that you realised that you had been adopted by the feminist movement? I mean, before nine to five, right? Well, it's funny that I've been adopted by the feminist movement. You know, people ask me if I'm a feminist. I yeah. say, well, does being, fem- does being feminine make you a feminist? You know, I'm very, I'm very proud of who I am. I'm very proud of all the women out there that are doing what they want to do and are able to get it done. And we've come a long way. But I don't think I don't have to carry signs. I'm, I just live it. I'm that. And I think that's great. And I think I write it in my songs. You know, I'm not a political person at all, but in my songs, though, I say what I feel, and that seems to fit a a lot of people. But the boobs, you know, I was always, I make jokes about them. I mean, I I had nice boobs, but I got them bigger, and I just wanted them. I mean, to me, you know, when they say, uh, you know, less is more, I think that's such BS (laughs) because I always wanted more. But I just I don't know. I just kind of do what makes me feel good. And I'd say what makes me feel good. I live what makes me feel good. And, And if women relate to that, well, that's what they're trying to be right themselves to be appreciated and respected. And uh, so I've been able to do that by just being who I am. And I'm lucky and I'm fortunate, but I'm proud to to be an example for a woman, strong woman in show business or in business, period. In your, well, business, I mean, you've got an empire going on now, right? Well, I do. I've been, I've been blessed with the, with working with good people. I have a lot of dreams, but they would not be able to come true if I didn't have this wonderful crew around me everywhere I go. I get to look good at so many other people's expense, but I don't take any of that for granted. And it does not go unappreciated because when I go, whether it's this business, just like what I'm doing talking to you, there's this whole group of people around here that are absolutely making me look like a star. And so... They're as big a star as I am. I've never had, I never thought of myself as having background singers or backup musicians. We've just always kind of been a group. And that's how I feel about the business things that I do. And I just try to work with people and I trust the people that are qualified in their areas. I have a lot to offer myself. And I'm the one sitting here because I guess there's a need for me to be here. They couldn't do their job. I couldn't do mine without having them. So that's just how that all works. In your book, Dolly Parton, Song Teller, and you've, you've talked about this before, after Porter Wagoner sued you, you, it was a very hard time. You had, as you put it, beset by both physical and psychological difficulties. You endured death threats, you spent years battling your weight, you felt betrayed by trusted associates, you went into a deep depression. How did you get through that? Well, I got through that like I get through everything, by having faith. 
And I believe that through God, all things are possible. I believe that God is in everything, especially to those people that do have faith and that do believe. You just have to figure out what it is he's trying to show you. Just like that story of the footprints, you know, in the sand, you know, when God was walking with you and then there was only one set of footprints and they said, why did you forsake me? He said, no, I was carrying you. It's kind of like that. You know, it's like I've always held on to God. And when I'm not doing good, it's just that I've let go of his hand. He don't let go of mine. And so I get through those things by having faith and believing that I can be better. I've been blessed with good friends too and good family and being able to lean on family and friends and the people when you're at your worst to love you no matter what you're going through or no matter how you act or how you feel, you know, you've got to have people there. So it's in my faith in God and faith in friends and family. Do you go to church? I don't go to church except on special occasions. It's not that I'm not I'm not opposed to going to church. I spent my whole life in church. I wish I had more time to go to church. And a church that I you know, could go to to where I'm just standing out like a sore thumb and take people's minds off of what they're supposed to have it on by saying, oh, there's a Dolly Parton sitting over there. <laughs> but it's not about that. To me, I, I, my church is in my heart. I think everybody, everybody's is. But I do think it's wonderful to have uh, the church because everybody needs a place to a fellowship and friendship and something to focus on. And, and people need that discipline too. For myself though, I, my God is very personal and I, I can go to church or not go to church, but I don't have to go to feel close to God. I have a, a little chapel in all of my uh, properties and I have a little inside my houses. I have a little pray do where I have a little place where I can, where I can just, you know, kneel and pray and do whatever I do just out of respect you know, for me more than anything. But um, I think that that's all well and good. Everybody has to do it in their own way. But the, my Bible says, let every man seek out his own salvation. And I think that means whatever's going to save you is what you do. So I just do what I feel like at the time. One of the things you are known for is your philanthropy. You've set up a literacy program, for example, the Imagination Library which you've described as a tribute to your father. How does it work? Well, it is a program that where we give books to children from the time they're born, they get a book once a month until they start kindergarten. And that's when they're most impressionable, and that's when they can learn to read. And uh, the father, my dad's part in that, my daddy couldn't read and write, but he was the, he's the, one of the smartest people I have ever known. And he's passed now, but I got my dad involved in the program because he was kind of crippled by that, or he just felt, you know, embarrassed or backwards about that. And so I wanted to do something special because when you you get into a position to help, and when you make money, you should you should I think put your put your efforts and your money into something you believe in. And if it's the more personal it is to you, the better you're going to be at it. So I. I started the program, uh, the reading program, the, the Imagination Library, in honor of my dad. And I got my dad involved in it with me to help me build it. And I made him feel special and important. And he felt like that we were doing something great for kids, that other kids wouldn't have to go through what he had gone through. So it really started out just something that I wanted to do in our county. And then before you know it, it went all over Tennessee. And then it went all over 
Canada, and now it's all over the world. And we've given away about 150 books since we started 25 years ago. And I know my dad would be so proud, but he did get to live long enough to uh, see the, the Imagination Library do really well. Uh, in Tennessee, they were talking about taking down the statues of Confederate generals and putting a statue up to you. Have they done that yet? <laughs> No, and I hope they don't, because I've told them the bust that they were trying to take down out of the Capitol. I said, you don't need my bust in there. Like they had a sign that said, Dolly for president. I said, no, thank you. We've had enough boobs in the White House, too. So I don't take that stuff serious, and I would not allow that. I would not want that to happen. I don't want any statues taken down and putting me there. If I get a statue, I want it to be self-standing for its own reason, not in protest or to replace somebody else. I'm just not like that. And I'm just, I don't want nothing to do with politics in any way. I just love people. I love everybody. I want to be accepted. I make my own joke. I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I'm a hypocrite. And in a way, I guess I'm a hypocrite, but not really. It just, I just really, I just understand people and things. And I just pray hard that we'll get it all together one of these days here. Uh, a couple of other of your philanthropic uh, m- movements has been My People Fund, which was $1,000 a month for six months to the families afflicted by the wildfires in Tennessee in 2016. How much money did you pay out to that? Oh, well, we made about $13 million when we did that show for the for the fires in, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and East Tennessee. But now that's another thing I was talking about before, where I can't take credit for that. I got to look good for that. I was the one that got, you know, I was the one. It was my hometown, my home area. But it was all my friends and show business and all the other people that helped so much and donated so much money. You know, like Paul Simon, you know, sent me like $100,000. And all all the, you know, wonderful people, so many of my other uh, friends in the business, just, you know, same thing, 50,000, 100,000, 20,000, 30,000, whatever they could do. And so many of my friends came and performed on the show. Some of them gave money and performed. So it was wonderful that we had, we made enough money to help all those families where we could give them all the the ones that have burned out, lost their cars, lost their homes, where we could give them a $1,000 a week till they got back on their feet. Look, I think there's going to be a statue to you uh, sometime quite soon, actually. In breaking news, are you going to model for Playboy again? Well, you know, I just might. I just might. I don't know. We're, we've been talking about it. I, it would be in good taste, and I'd probably do a, I hopefully would do a good interview inside like we did the other time. But I, uh, it's, I don't know if I will or not. Uh, but I might, just to have a good picture to show that I still got it, even if I'm 75. <laughs> People only read Playboy for the articles anyway, right? I think they only read Playboy for the articles, yeah. I don't be doing any layouts or any spreads, if you pardon the expression, but I might be on the cover. They're telling me I have to wind up here, so I guess that's a good one to, to, to leave on, don't it you It is. <laughs> it's been lovely talking to you. Best of luck. I hope you live forever. Okay. I think I will in one way or another. Thank you.